You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. And today we're going to turn to covering the geopolitics of an issue that has been in the news uh, quite a bit over the past month or so. But I think it's fair to say that there still isn't a whole lot of clarity as to what is really going on. And that is the ongoing face-off between China and India on the so-called Doklam tri-boundary area that lies between those two countries and Bhutan. Um, So over the past few weeks, we've seen essentially what is a border standoff between China and India continue to escalate uh, to a very disturbing level. Uh, There are troops on both sides that remain in a face-off position today, as well as escalating rhetoric from both uh, Beijing and New Delhi. Uh, It started in June, essentially, when uh, Chinese military engineers began constructing a road near the Indian border on territory that remains disputed between China and Bhutan, uh, which still doesn't have diplomatic ties uh, with China. Uh, And essentially what happened was India crossed the border uh, with troops to block this from happening, which obviously made the Chinese quite upset, and both sides have since refused to budge. Now, this is, isn't the first time we've seen such standoffs uh, between uh, China and India. There's hundreds of these incidents uh, that we've witnessed. Even sometimes in a year, you can find dozens of them uh, at a particular period of time. But this is unique in a number of ways. Um, to mention just one, this is a settled border we're talking about in the Sino-Indian context, not a disputed one like in Kashmir or Arunachal Pradesh. And it also just bring into spotlight uh, Bhutan and its ties to both Beijing and New Delhi. Um, And while we're going to focus largely on the broader geopolitics of all this today, since this is the Asia Geopolitics podcast, before we kick this off, I should mention to listeners that Ankit has kicked off a series for us at The Diplomat, where he's going to be doing a deep dive into this. Um, The first piece has just been published on the political geography um, of the situation, which includes a series of very helpful maps. So you guys should definitely check that out. And Ankit will be doing a series uh, of these uh, explaining the wider geopolitics as well. And we will make sure to link that uh, to the podcast. So Ankit, uh, I guess maybe where we should start uh, before we get to the stakes and the significance of this um, is explaining to listeners as you try to do uh, in your piece for us this week, I mean, what's really in dispute here? I mean, there really is a lot of this, uh, you know, there's an informal Sino-Indian understanding, there's old 19th century maps, there's all this interesting satellite imagery that you've shown in your piece. Um, where should we start to understand this? Yeah, sure, Prashant. Um, yeah, and thanks for plugging the series that's just getting kicked off. And actually, I think this podcast will end up touching on a lot of things that episodes in the series that are in under progress will uh, will address. So the podcast is really a preview of how the series is going to develop. Um, I mean, look, the first place to start with this, um, you know, I found it very helpful, at least, to just start by looking at maps. Um, anytime you're talking about any territorial maritime dispute in Asia anywhere, maps are useful, right? Um, I love maps. They really help clarify what's at stake on the ground. Uh, the geo and geopolitics obviously refers to the actual geography. So just like the first step for me was to understand the political geography of what was happening here. And that was a surprisingly difficult task. Um, it actually took me, you know, three weeks of um, real like, you know, looking at maps, like looking at historical maps, Google Maps, satellite imagery to really figure out 
what exactly had happened and what the context of this dispute was. Um, there was a lot of press attention to this in India and China, understandably. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, there are some limitations to a lot of those reports. Um, the big one being that in either country, obviously, most of these reports are being written with a certain degree of um you know, bias towards their government's policy. You won't really find articles, too many articles in India um, treating the Chinese case here as um, anything to be reasoned with or serious. Um, you know, the beginning assumption is that this is another example of, of Chinese expansionism in Asia, a Chinese disregard for rules and principles. And in China, by contrast, the, the reaction has been unusually apoplectic. Um, and Prashant, you explained, I think, uh, really well why that's the case, right? Normally, when India and China have border incidents, it's happening across a disputed border. Uh, so Aksai Chin, we had, you know, the Depsang Dolat Beg Oldi incident in 2013. We had the Chumar incursion in the same area in 2014. Both of those were resolved diplomatically. A shot hasn't been fired on the India-China border in decades now. And uh, this is really the most serious incident in about 30 years. And part of the reason for that is that the Indian border here is settled, as Prashant noted. There is no dispute. India doesn't dispute this border with either China or Bhutan. Instead, and, and I hope listeners are looking at a map as they listen to this podcast because it will help follow along um, with, with what I'm saying. Instead, there's this piece of territory known as the Doklam or Dolam Plateau. But if you go and Google that, you'll actually see a piece of territory between what's known as Tibet's Chumbi Valley and Bhutan. That is actually the wrong place to look. Um, and a lot of early articles, I think, in the international press, once this started to look like a dispute that would stick around, cited that as the location of this incident, which really confused people because the Doklam Plateau isn't actually, um, the proper Doklam Plateau isn't actually contiguous with India. So, you know, people were asking, how did India cross a border and suddenly end, and suddenly end up there? Instead, what I've been referring to this as is the, is the Doklam tri-boundary region or the tri-boundary area, uh, because that helps explain what the, the core dispute is. So as Prashant noted, China and Bhutan have a disputed border here. Um, and the dispute about the border is really about where the east-west mountain ridge ends, right? So if you're if you're looking at the map, China basically claims that it has its territory is rightfully about seven eight kilometers further south than Bhutan and India think it is. India here supports Bhutan's claim because India and Bhutan have a special relationship that goes back decades. It's a small Himalayan kingdom with a population of about you know three quarters of a million people. Um, Bhutan has historically relied on India to guide its foreign and defense policy. They have a friendship treaty from 1949 that was updated in 2007 to give Bhutan a little bit more leeway. So India and Bhutan are basically on one side here um, about the nature of this tri-boundary point, which really sits at a place called Batangla. And that point is really part, you know, it, it, it's the cornerstone of the Indian and Bhutanese claims here. The Chinese claim that this point does not sit at Batangla, but it sits seven kilometers further south at a peak called Mount Gimpochi. And this is what the Chinese foreign ministry has really been reiterating in multiple statements. This is their position. And the Chinese have been really, you know, what they see as being really transparent here. They've released images of the dispute. They've released their own maps of the dispute. They see themselves as really being absolutely correct here. Um, you know, if there are, you know, lingering, uh, lingering doubts about China's claims, for example, at some times in the South China Sea, along the land border with India, none of that really exists here. As far as China is considered, there is an 1890 convention that was signed between British India and China, then the Qing Dynasty, that unequivocally says that Mount Gimpochi is the tri-boundary point. Prashant, I'm going to stop there because we can talk about that convention a bit more later because it's it's a pretty interesting document. 
Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, and thanks for getting us, um, you know, updated with respect to the historical stuff. I mean, I, I think the other thing that you mentioned in your piece that I think um, listeners would would benefit from is, I mean, there there is this sense from the Indian side that there has been some sort of understanding with China with respect to how this. Um, any existing disputes could be managed in relation with Bhutan, right? The Indians claim that there was some sort of informal agreement um, that they had that there will be consultation with all three parties whenever something is, uh, you know, uh, is in dispute. Um, and I guess what that leads us to, since we're talking about the broader geopolitical situation here, is um, you know what Bhutan's perspective is in all of this, right? Um, as, as you correctly pointed out. Um, there is a perception in India that what China is trying to do is to unilaterally change uh, the status quo uh, by upsetting what India and Bhutan um, would otherwise like to remain. But from the Chinese perspective, uh, what they're claiming is, I mean, this is essentially something that's between us and Bhutan, and you Indians are, are sticking your nose into uh, the situation. Um, and I think one thing that would be interesting for us to, to explore here is, is, is two things. One is you know, what was that nature of the understanding uh, between India and China, and, and how does that take us up to this point? But also the second one, which is um, this idea of what the Chinese are doing with respect to the building of the road, gets to perhaps a concern, I guess, that goes through uh, the minds of some folks in New Delhi, which is, you know, to what extent is Bhutan going to live up to you know any understanding, uh, whether it's you know formal, informal uh, with India as time goes on, right? We have seen the Chinese test uh, what Bhutan's relationship might be relative to India and China um, in terms of trying to engage Bhutan, talking about expanding uh, the relationship and perhaps fully normalizing ties. And I suspect it will continue uh, to do so. So it'd be interesting to get your take on, you know, what. Uh, the broader situation is with respect to those two things. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, there's a lot to cover here, so I'll I'll try to be I'll try to be relatively economical with what I say. So the 2012 agreement um, is important. It's uh, it's part of India's reasoning for why it's in the right here. Um, so in 2012, there was an agreement. Uh, the Indian Ministry of Extre External Affairs doesn't call it an informal agreement. They just call it an agreement between uh, India and China that any uh, tri-boundary disputes, um, and the main ones here would be the one with Bhutan and another with Myanmar, would be resolved um, with consultation with the third party, right? right? So all three countries would be involved in the discussions. And in the Bhutanese case, Indians presumably assumed that the royal government of Bhutan would support their claim on the tri-boundary point. So for India, this is an important agreement. The Chinese government has made no reference to this 2012 agreement in any foreign ministry statements, either by spokespeople or anyone else that I've read. Um, so that's interesting to begin with. Then, uh, uh, so Indian, um, uh, former Indian uh, Foreign Secretary Shiv Shankar Menon did an interview uh, where he referred to this 2012 agreement as a broad understanding, which kind of got me thinking, uh, you know, just how robust was this agreement? You know, was this really just a handshake, a polite nod that the Chinese are effectively ignoring now because they see this as an example of Indian aggression across an international boundary? That could be, right? So they, they have really been ignoring this agreement. They see no role for the 2012 um, understanding between the two sides to play a role here. So that's the first thing. The second thing that you got at is Indian concern about changes to the status quo. So this is really the center, um, and you know I really should have said this earlier. So when the, when it comes down to it, this this whole incident is really an example of India in a way acting like the great power, the real politique power that so many uh, Indian strategic analysts have been calling for for a long time, right? But there are kind of these twin impulses in India where um, India obviously is 
has been distinguishing itself as a as a rule follower in Asia for the most part, right? It, it, it says that it supports the rules-based order. It doesn't really kind of throw its weight around Asia too frequently as a might makes right power, uh, which China is perceived as doing. Obviously, we see examples of that um, in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, um, more broadly with Chinese security relations across the continent. India doesn't really do that. But in this case, it did because it has a very, um, at least... You know, Indian strategists perceive great strategic value in preventing any southward extension of the Chumbi Valley, which is uh, this um, really important Chinese passage that juts out from the southern part of Tibet like a dagger that separates the Indian state of Sikkim from Bhutan. Um, so the the southern tip of the Chumbi Valley is where this tri-border region is, and the Chinese uh, effectively are trying to extend that. So what is the the status quo concern here? The Chinese have oh, had. Ankit, yeah. Ankit, before we go on to that, uh, I think maybe explain to listeners a little bit more about that. So you mentioned um, that tri-boundary area and also the Chumbi Valley, right? Mm-hmm. Just maybe briefly touch on. I mean, this cut gets to also an, an area that's military vulnerable for India, right? The so-called chicken neck. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was about then, to get to. And the sort of yeah, the narrow area where the Chinese seem vulnerable. So maybe touch on that. And then- yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so the Chumbi Valley is a point of um, a vulnerability but access for the People's Liberation Army. Um, and actually, the Indian and Chinese, uh, you know, the last time they had a serious border incident, it was at the Nathula Pass, which is uh, in uh, northern Sikkim, where uh, the Indians actually ended up, um, you know, dealing a bloody nose to the Chinese after the uh, five years after the, the 1962 war, which India lost. And, you know, that, that incident continues to carry quite a bit of weight in how India thinks about its relationship with China more broadly. So there is this ridge um, at the southern reach of this disputed area between Bhutan and China, the Doklam uh, tri-boundary area. The southern ridge is called the, the Jamperi Ridge, and it's at about a, an elevation of um, 14,500 feet. And that is really the final point where the mountains start to kind of flatten out into eventually what becomes the plains of northern West Bengal and, and leads into the Siliguri Corridor. Um, the Siliguri Corridor is what Prashant was referencing. The, uh, it's also known as the Chicken's Neck. It's that incredibly narrow bit of India that runs between Nepal and Bangladesh that leads to Northeast India. Indian strategists perceive that as a huge choke point vulnerability that in wartime, the People's Liberation Army could uh, potentially you know, interdict Indian transportation and supplies across um, from the Northeast to the rest of India. So that in part explains why Indians are so sensitive to any changes to the status quo here. And you know, when anytime we're talking about a status quo in a dispute, I think it's worth clarifying what the status quo actually was. So the dispute started uh, really in mid-June. June 16th was the day that um, most of the action went down and the standoff actually became a standoff. So as Prashant referenced in the introduction, a People's Liberation Army engineering team um, began contru- uh, constructing a motorable road. That means a road on which um, heavy equipment could be transported via potentially truck or vehicles, uh, which seemingly didn't exist before. There was a network of roads in this disputed area that China has at least had since the late 80s. Satellite imagery that I looked at showed evidence of those roads going back to at least 2005, but there's been no serious incidents in this area uh, in the same um, you know in the same time frame. In 2007, a Chinese patrol did end up destroying an Indian post in the Bhutanese area, uh, but apart from that, there's been nothing like this standoff. So it's really this intent on China's part to extend the roads that they have and make them motorable, potentially leading down to that Mount Gimpochi point that the Chinese claim is their tri-boundary interpretation. That's really what I think spooked India into into action here. That's what happened. Great. Um, And I think, you know, now uh, with that um, understanding, you know, what's in dispute and then what's what's at stake, we can then move on to talk about the broader significance of all of this within the 
the Sino-Indian relationship. Because I think if if you look at the relationship even before this happened, I mean, it was in a in a pretty uh, rocky road, I would say, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you had um, from the Indian perspective, you know, the the visit of the Dalai Lama to Arunachal Pradesh, um, the decision not to attend um, China's Belt and Road uh, Summit, which we talked about on this podcast uh, earlier on as well. Um, and then from you know from what the Chinese have done uh, from an Indian perspective, the um, Chinese attitude with respect to Indian membership of the nuclear suppliers group, um, the Masood Azhar uh, listing, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, the list the list really goes on. Yeah. Um, but uh, if if someone were to ask, you know, what would account for the particular timing um, of this Chinese move? Um, which, which is always a very tricky thing to to understand uh, fully, um, and obviously it, it may be more due to circumstance rather than a design. But you know, how would you answer that question, Akin? That's I think you know that's one of the things I'm still trying to figure out, Prashant. Um, I have a few hypotheses about this. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that um, the the entry of the PLA engineer uh, group into this area actually came right as Modi was at the Shanghai Cooperation Summit. Um, at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. India became a full member um, of this um, grouping that was originally started by China um, well over a decade ago. And uh, that's interesting timing because, you know, ostensibly China wouldn't want to immediately stir the pot with India right after it joins the SCO, right? Um, You know, I, I think ultimately what happened here is that the Chinese just perceived this activity as wholly uh, uncontroversial. And I think part of that was because they knew that there was an international boundary there. They knew that, um, you know, this area was in dispute, but the Chinese have been patrolling it and operating there and just dealing with the Bhutanese mostly for a while. India does have a permanent military presence in this part of, of, of Bhutan, and Indian patrols do also enter this area. But there hasn't been an incident like this again. So I think the Chinese just thought that, you know, while this is... Um, you know, probably going to look like season, uh, seasonal maintenance of this road, even if it is an actual improvement. And there is kind of this, you know, question about um, what, you know, what really drove the Indians to intervene? Was it a perception on the Indian side of China's intent? Because as far as I can tell, no construction actually happened, like an extension of this road, an extension of a motorable road didn't actually happen. The Indians effectively added, acted preemptively. So that's kind of question. It's like, how did the Chinese signal to the Indians that this was going to be an, you know, a motorable road? I mean, obviously they showed up with construction equipment, which is what the Indian sources claim. But uh, you know, that's again uh, an open question about this. But I think the Chinese really misjudged the Indian Army's reaction here. They probably yeah. never thought that they would cross and actually try to preempt them across an international border, which again goes back to explaining why their reaction has been so angry. But Prashant, you know, I mean, I, I think everything you said really gets at the core of this crisis, right? So I've been talking about all this, you know, geographic minutiae, an 1890 convention between British India and the Qing dynasty. But really, the resolution of this dispute isn't going to come down to kind of, you know, polite talks over a cup of tea about 19th century treaties and just coming to an agreement on something like that. I mean, China has laid down preconditions, which is, again, really unusual. Like all of those incidents that I referred to, the serious incidents recently, like the 2013 and 2014 uh, Depsang and Chumar incidents, uh, the Chinese never laid down preconditions for talks. Uh, Talks were always ongoing. So the room for diplomacy was substantively larger. And this is why this dispute really concerns people, because both India and China are at an impasse. They're gridlocked. The Chinese have demanded that no diplomacy can take place until the Indians withdraw. Um, So it's a unilateral kind of ultimatum. And the Indians obviously aren't going to withdraw because withdrawal is effectively going to cause them to lose face, right? The Indians have been really kind of 
Um, it's been interesting to watch Indian messaging out of the Ministry of External Affairs on this. Uh, they did release a statement where they noted coordination with Bhutan. They really kind of sought to justify their action, but they never really acknowledged the fact that they directly transgressed across an international boundary, right? So that is something that India is trying to not really address and hope that this explanation that changes to the status quo are unacceptable under this 2012 agreement and Bhutan supports that position is is sufficient for them. The Bhutanese, yeah. meanwhile, you know, we should talk about the Bhutanese because they're, they're important here. They don't get that much attention on the Asia Geopolitics podcast, but they're really at the center of this. I mean, they um, hold, I think, I mean, in my perception, the Bhutanese hold the key to letting the Indians really resolve this in a face-saving way. If the Bhutanese come out and they talk about their relationship with India and they, you know, effectively come out and say that they appreciated India effectively providing a collective security kind of service here by preventing the Chinese from changing the status quo, that I think can lead to a place where um, India and China can maybe walk back from this. But the problem is, you know, I mean, the relationship between Bhutan and India has been changing. They have this revised treaty in 2007. They have an election coming up next year, um, a legislative election, I believe, that's, again, going to probably center now around the question of the country's relationship with India. But they've also gone through 24 rounds of border talks with China. And I think the Bhutanese really want to settle those talks, too. And they care about their relationship with China, which, though not formalized diplomatically, again, matters because Bhutan sits between these two massive nuclear armed giants with a billion people each. And it's not really in any position to swing its leverage around. So I think, um, you know, we, as we record this podcast, it appears that I don't really know where this dispute is going. But I think one of the big factors to watch is how Bhutan maneuvers in the in the coming weeks and days. The Bhutanese foreign ministry has been quite quiet publicly. They've released one statement, and that statement was interesting. It provided a lot of clarity on what supposedly happened. But interestingly, it didn't reference India at all. Um, so there's all of this, um, you know, Context. And I think it really comes down to Bhutan, this tiny country, and how it kind of will think about its relationship with India and China going forward. And on the Indian and Chinese side, I think this is really about how these two great powers perceive their destinies in Asia. And it's less about kind of, you know, figuring out these interesting, you know, to me, these details are very interesting. But ultimately, I don't think they will be the place where a solution will be found. Yeah, I mean, I, I think your point here about, um, you know, making sure that, you know, we, we do consider the Bhutanese perspective here is really important because I think um, as China and India sort of play in each other's neighborhoods, we, we do see more and more of these cases of, you know, smaller countries caught between uh, two giants. Um, and you're right. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, there is talk about, you know, hedging and, and how these countries can try to exploit uh, potential tensions between these two uh, big powers. But to a certain extent, I mean, them being smaller countries, I mean, they also, um, you know, have a lot, they have a lot of risks uh, when these two uh, big powers, um, you know, go at uh, each other or experience tensions in their uh, relationship as well. And I think uh, the particularly the upcoming uh, elections in Bhutan will definitely be a, a good indicator there of where things stand. I mean, I also think the point that you make about um, how little is known about uh, the dispute, even though so much has been written about it, is important to keep in mind. I, I do sense, if you look at the Chinese press as well as the Indian press, I mean, it's been quite troubling. Um, and you pointed this out as well on Twitter. Um, you know, the, the, the Chinese keep talking about how bold the Indians are becoming and they reference things like, you know, the Malabar exercises and, you know, Modi's visit to India. Um, and on the Indian side, you see talk about, oh, the Chinese are being really bold and assertive. They're not, you know, just like how they're acting in the South China Sea, they're acting like this here. And there's a PLA anniversary coming up. There's a party congress at the end of this year. So even though there's so much that is still left unknown, that hasn't 
prevented both sides from upping the tensions. And I think that really is a concern when you're talking about escalation. So that really is something important to keep in mind that we still don't know a lot in the dispute. So. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I don't think we can write off the possibility of, you know, escalation or kinetic exchange. I mean, yes, the nuclear sword of Damocles does hang over anything and any sort of dispute between India and China in this area. Um, but, you know, I mean, there is the way we've seen the rhetoric really develop on both sides has been really troubling. The Indian Foreign Ministry has tried to kind of walk things back a bit. Foreign Secretary S.J. Shankar uh, delivered some remarks recently where uh, he was quite conciliatory on China. Uh, I think really kind of trying to lay the groundwork for a diplomatic way out of this. Um, but, you know, that said, I think the Chinese um, are, are you know, quite upset. I mean, in their perspective, there is this treaty that both sides agreed to. And the Indian Prime Minister, uh, first Indian Prime Minister Nehru, in their view, affirmed his support for this treaty. And that treaty says Mount Gimpochi. And I guess um, I do want to just really quickly revisit this treaty thing, Prashant, because I think it's interesting. Is that all sure. right? Um, yeah, cool. Yeah, so this treaty, uh, Article 1 of this treaty, talks about the border delimitation between Sikkim and Tibet. Sikkim at that time um, was a British protectorate, so the British uh, negotiated the border on their behalf. It used what's known as a watershed principle, which is really the source of a lot of kind of border disputes and confusion in the Himalayas, because in the 19th century, early 20th century, survey work was generally quite poor. So the watershed principle, what that refers to, is using the highest line of mountains um, as, a, as a border. Um, as effectively, you know, a, a natural border and just converting that into a political boundary between between two political entities. So in the Sikkim-Tibet case, they did exactly that, right? And so the treaty says that the border of Sikkim and Tibet shall be the crest of the mountain range separating the waters flowing into the Sikkim-Tista and its affluence from the waters flowing into the Tibetan Mochu and northwards into other rivers of Tibet. The line commences at Mount Gimpochi on the Bhutan frontier and follows the above-mentioned water parting to the point where it meets Nepal's territory. Both of those sentences, um, both of those sentences, can't be true at the same time, and yeah. the, and the British didn't know this because they didn't have the survey equipment. But if you follow the crest of the mountain, it actually ends at Batangla, which is which is just a geographic fact. If you look at the crest of the mountain range and how it how it ends up going into the area, it ends at the point that India and and Bhutan claim is the tri-boundary point. Right. And there's actually British maps. So the British didn't pair any maps with this convention because they just, I guess, weren't confident about where things were, actually. But there's a map, I think, from uh, um, the early 20th century that does show the tri-boundary point at Batangla. So, I mean, you know, if, if, if the Indians really did want to, you know, bring an army of historians to kind of look into this matter and, and put forth a case, they would they would have a reasonable argument that the tri-boundary point has always been at Batangla and that the Chinese interpretation is, is simply kind of, you know, giving too much credence to uh, 19th century survey work. Um, but again, I don't I don't think that that's the path to a solution here. Uh, it, it, yeah. it never is in, in Asian territorial disputes uh, where history yeah. is often um, a very big part of, of um, you know, the dispute. So on that optimistic note, uh, <laughs> uh, so as always, I mean, there's there's so much more we can we can talk about this, and I'm sure um, Ankit will be revisiting the, uh, this in multiple posts in in, in the series um, that he started for us, and so uh, you guys should check out uh, our website. And as I said, I mean, I really would recommend if you're listening to this podcast or just trying to get an understanding of the dispute. Uh, to read the piece because some, it, it really does help, as Ankit said, to when you're dealing with these um, disputes, uh, to start with a map and see what exactly is in question. You'll find sometimes that some of the commentaries out there um, get even the basics of uh, these disputes um, quite wrong. So um, we'll leave it there for now. Um, and to our listeners, as always, uh, thanks for listening. 
and do leave us a review if you like what you're hearing. And if you want us to cover any topics that we haven't already, uh, feel free to let Ankit or I know. Um, but for now, um, thanks for joining me, Ankit, and uh, goodbye to our listeners. Yeah, thanks, Prashant. It was a real pleasure.